I always have to counsel people, if, if you ever think about uh, being in ministry, don't get married in the summer. I can really count on one hand how many anniversaries my wife and I have spent together because of camp or VBS or what have you. But hey, it's worth it. All right, if you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Not last week, but the week before that, I began a sermon in Hebrews 12, uh, really 1 through 3. I didn't quite get to verse 3 quite enough. I'm going to do that a little bit today. But I'm going to continue on with the flow of this passage. And what we saw the week prior was that the author of Hebrews, and really, I say author, but ultimately Hebrews is a sermon that was actually being preached. So the preacher is presenting a, a picture that one, that's one that you and I need to be reminded again and again and again. And that's the metaphor of an athlete, that of a runner, that of being in a race where we're to cross this finish line and standing at the finish line is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've got to be in this race, people. We've got to pursue holiness with all of our might. We saw from those verses that there are strategies for successfully running. We talk about motivation, the great cloud of witnesses, preparation by laying aside anything that would hinder us from running the race of faith. We saw determination, running with endurance so that we make it all the way, and fixation, being, fixing our eyes upon Jesus Christ. But like I just said, I didn't really get into verse 3. Technically, the, the main text of the sermon begins at verse 4, but I don't want to neglect verse 3. So before we really get to that main text, I want to walk through verse 3. So let's read that together. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So in, in the first verse, part of the second verse, the preacher here is placing the focus on the runners, the church there that meets uh, what we think is Rome. The runners being the church to whom this masterful sermon is crafted. And there's some strong evidence, like I said, that this is pointing to Rome. We're not certain, but it doesn't really matter. But here in verse 3, he is presented as the one, Jesus Christ, as the one who has the ultimate endurance. He shows them great endurance in the face of hostility. Let's look at this. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners. Let's talk about the sinners for a moment. Who are these sinners? These are the people that refuse to lay aside their sin. Anything that would encumbrance their running, they're not saved to begin with. They don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, they pour their hostility out into Jesus Christ. How does he endure that? Through his entire life and his death. His whole life, people came against him tried to harm him, tried to kill him before the appointed time that would mock him and slur him. And then finally, they executed him upon a cross, enduring persecution that none of us could possibly imagine. And here he's pointing these, these listeners, the church that meets here possibly at Rome. He connects the, the terms of race and endurance and running with the persecution that they've been enduring. And then comparing it to Jesus Christ. So the problem is that these people had started running this race. And started in, uh, receiving persecution in their life. And the fear was that many of them started pursuing and running well. They were beginning to lose heart. They are beginning to go weary. Just real quick turn to chapter 10. Let's look at verse 32. 
Chapter 10, verse 32. He says, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, that means when they came to a knowledge of Jesus Christ, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. So they had started enduring persecution since they started coming to Christ. And in fact, the rest of that little section there in chapter 10 talks about this persecution isn't going to end. Perhaps if this church is in Rome, man, that's not prophetic if I've not heard one. They have not yet begun to experience tribulation. And they started running this race really well, but they began losing heart. They began running out of steam, so to speak. They were growing weary, and he's pointing them to Jesus Christ. Consider him. He was the means to give them courage to face the persecutions that they were going through. That's why he refers to not losing heart or growing weary. This is why it's so important for us Christians to be thinking upon, meditating upon Christ and his gospel. That's what he just said in verse 2. He endured the cross, despised the shame, and then as a result of his faithfulness, sat down at the right hand of the Father, keeping your eyes on Christ, fixed, as it were, like a laser, drawing encouragement and strength by what he went through. And this is an important point. He doesn't tell these Christians to hold on to their own strength. I'm sure they tried, but that was the issue, wasn't it? Their strength had been failing. He didn't tell them to hang on to their own measure of faith. Now, I have to be careful there. But honestly, can you admit that there are times that your faith wavers? There are times when you have doubt, when difficulties and trials come to your life, you feel some doubts. He's not telling them, just be strong. He's not telling them, just have more faith. No, he tells them to consider Christ. Be fixed upon Jesus and what he has done. Christ is our whole life. There's nothing else to it. In fact, that's what life is all about. It's about the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4 says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ... If you are a new creature in Christ, right? When we baptize, we say buried with Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. We are in union spiritually with Jesus Christ in his resurrection. If you have been raised up with Jesus Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. He gets very specific, doesn't he? Keep your eyes on Christ, up above at the right hand of the Father. He wants them to remember that Christ is in a position of all authority and all power. So why are we fixated upon the things of this earth? And then when things start going wacko in life, and sometimes they do, don't they? All of our lives get stirred up because we're not fixed upon what is heavenly and eternal. He says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. Now, he's not saying that the things of the earth is wrong to... To have a house or have a job or pay your bills. Those are all good and wonderful things. But the point is, he's drawing out, what is your ultimate aim? What is your ultimate focus on life? It can't be on the things of this earth. This is going away. 
what is eternal, it remains. And we need to keep our eyes focused on the, on the eternal. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? You died. The old you, the old focuses, the old ambitions, the old drives are dead now, as it were, when Christ died on the cross and, cross and was buried. And your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. When people are focused on the things of the earth, it's because they want something. They want glory. They want fame. They want power. They want freedom. They want the ability to do this or to do that thing. That's ultimately what we're looking for when we have our eyes focused on the earth. Paul says, keep your eyes on Christ. Paul says it, and the preacher of Hebrews says it. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ because he's coming back. And when he comes back, you'll be like him and you'll have glory. Everything that you were hoping for in this life gets brought to fruition by the coming of Jesus Christ. And oh, it's so much better than anything we can amass on this earth. So, so much better. This is a common theme, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And this life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Acts 17, 28, in him we live and move and have our being. This is the whole point of the book of Hebrews. And the only way we will endure this way is by keeping our eyes on Christ, meditating upon him, reminding ourselves of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's Christ and his promises that we look to ultimately, not our own strength, not our own works, not our own efforts. Are we commanded to do good works? Yeah, absolutely we are. But it's not those good works that save us. And it's not those good works that give us strength to persevere in the faith. Continually look to Christ. Scottish pastor, theologian, Robert Murray McChaney said, he, he was in the mid-1800s, he said, take one good look at your heart, then take 10,000 looks at Christ. Because you take a good look at your heart, you're going to see something that is so unchristlike. And when all else fails, when your heart fails, when you feel that depression coming, I'll never measure up, you look to Christ. And it's because of his righteousness that we are positionally right before God our Father. So that's verse 3. I want to walk through that just quickly before we get into our text. But now let's transition because... The author of Hebrews here transitions as well. So let's read verse 4, what I would call a transitional or a uh, kind of a pivotal verse that connects what he's about to say to what he's going to say. So it marks a difference, a change in tone. Verse 4, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. So this is definitely a shift of focus. And you're like, well, Pastor Brian, how do you know it's a shift in focus? Well, one... The focus goes from Christ back to the church, back to the community there of believers. But he also switches metaphors. Whereas he was at first talking about running and running a race and being on the track and having a great cloud of witnesses, he now talks about boxing. Like, well, it doesn't say boxing here in this passage. You're right, it doesn't. But the word resisted, 
the word striving. Those words, this is why we think whoever preached this word in Hebrews here had a real command of classical Greek literature because these two words that he chose are only used here in the New Testament. But they are used in Greek culture in the, um, in the context of athleticism and athlete, uh, athletics. In fact, when you connect that phrase resisted to the point of bloodshed, that's drawn from the Pan-Hellenic Games. So Hellenism, that's Greek culture that's spread across the earth. And the most bloody of all sports in the Pan-Hellenic Games was boxing. In fact, the Greek philosopher Seneca said a true athlete was the man who saw his own blood regularly. This shift in metaphor is not uncommon. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 talks about running the race and then in verse 26 talks about boxing, you know, about shadow boxing. So he's urging the church to reflect on their own experience of hostile persecution, but reminding them that their persecution had not risen to the level of shedding blood like Jesus Christ has. But the reason why he brings this in is that he's, he's using this imagery that sin is an enemy that must be overcome. He brings it back. So in the very beginning, in verse 1, he talks about laying aside all encumbrances and all of sin that would hold us back. Then he tells us to fix our eyes on Christ, but now he goes back to fighting in a blood match against sin. And this serves as a transition to the text. So we have the image of a runner, the exhortation to run the race, and we also have the boxing metaphor. But what the author has not said yet, and what he's about to get into these next verses, is the necessary ingredient for all athletes, for all who intend to run the race, for all who intend to go all 12 rounds in the fight of faith, there is one important ingredient, training. Only a fool of an athlete would step into a boxing ring without the proper training. Only a fool would get on the track, start running when the gun is fired up in the air, but having prepared himself, but having built up his cardio, his endurance, and his breath control. Such an athlete is doomed to fail. Such an athlete will not cross the finish line. Such an athlete will go down in the first round. In fact, probably before the bell rings after the first round. Training is essential. And I think we understand this. I'm reminded of the great coach Vince Lombardi of the Green Bay Packers. It was summer 1961. Well, this is a little before my time. just want to put that out right now. In the summer of 1961, <laughs> training camp, all the players showed up wondering what their coach would do. They had suffered some brutal losses this season before. And Vince Lombardi comes out and everyone takes a knee out there and he holds up a football in the air and he says, this, this is a football. And then he began a training program, getting them back to the fundamentals. It was grueling. It was agonizing. He wouldn't let them go any farther in what they did until he, they got certain core concepts down. See, in his expert estimation, the players had not trained well. That's why they lost and why they will lose again and again and again if he didn't put them through agonizing training. It's important. After I preached, you, many of you called me, actually, and said, did you actually get up that rope? You remember that illustration about climbing that rope? Yes, I did get up the rope. I'm happy to say that. But it was because of training. In fact, I wouldn't have been able to get through that entire 
aerosol course if it wasn't for training. I was at muscle failure every single day. I couldn't lift my arms like higher than this. There were times I would walk in the front door of my house and literally collapse on the floor of the living room. Ask my wife when she comes back from camp. You can ask her. It was grueling and it was hard, but it was necessary because when the time came, I needed that kind of training because jumping out of a helicopter at 100 feet up in the air takes a little bit of strength and willpower. Ropes are heavy. Things are difficult. I needed the proper training. No soldier goes into the battlefield unless he has been first trained how to use his weapon and gain the endurance to get across the battlefield. Well, God has a training program for his people, and it's called discipline. Bringing trials and difficulties in our lives serve as a spiritual training regimen to help his people cross the line to fight the good fight of the faith. And without it, we're like the foolish athlete that shows up to the game without any training. And I fear so many Christians want to go to this track without any kind of training and expect to finish the race. But you have a personal trainer. It's God your Father. Most Christians, though, hate discipline. Come on, are we honest? Who likes discipline? The very thing designed by God to prepare us, to develop us, to change us, is the one thing we tend to hate the most. And the one thing that we try to avoid at all costs. Let's be honest. Many of us pray, oh, I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want to bring difficulty in my life. No trials, please. And then when it does come, we fight against it. That song we just sang... Though he slave me, God removes things out of our lives. And instead of submitting to what the Lord is doing, we try to fight it back. But yet God is doing these things to train us. Look, I know discipline is hard. I mean, if it weren't hard, would it really be called discipline? But on the authority of God's word, I can tell you it is worth it. From these next set of verses, I want us to change the way we think about God's discipline in our lives. I want us to see three distinct attitudes about discipline. Oh, Christian, I want you to see that when God's discipline arrives on its doorstep, and if it hasn't, it will, it means that God loves you, he's preparing you, and he desires to reward you. Discipline is good and a necessary process to run the race and fight the fight of faith. So let's walk through some of these attitudes. The first one is this. Be encouraged by discipline, for God loves you. Be encouraged. Think about that. Be encouraged by discipline. Who feels like discipline's an encouraging thing? <clears throat> now, be encouraged by discipline, for God loves you. Let's read verses 5 and 6. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are being reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Now, like a true expositor of the word, now remember, he's preaching here. Like a true expositor of the word, this preacher quotes a passage of scripture. And in this case, it's Proverbs 3, verses 11 through 12. He's really quoting it from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. And then he draws out meaning and application from this. So that's what we're going to do today. We've got to remember, though, the context. Okay, this church was undergoing persecution. And as a result of that, many have endured for a time. But the problem was they were losing hope. 
They were getting weary in their faith. Perhaps they were thinking that God really wasn't for them or perhaps God was punishing them or God was angry with them and they were shrinking away. But in addition to what the author had just said to them about not losing heart, about not growing weary, about right, uh, having endurance, he tells them that they forgot something very important, something critical. They forgot the exhortation from the scriptures. And this word exhortation could also be translated encouragement. You've forgotten the encouragement that the word of God gives you for something like this. Like athletes who are in a competition, they need encouragement. We need encouragement as well. And this encouragement comes from God's word. Not pithy statements, not Instagram theology, you know, hashtag blessed. But if you put your hope in Christ and his promises, you will always, always, always walk away encouraged. So let's start with this passage that he's exegeting. My son, okay, full stop. My son, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you're not just part of a club, you're not part of, you're just a random citizen, you are a son or a daughter of God Almighty. Through the work of Christ, the gift of faith, we're children of Almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth. You are a child of the sovereign of the universe. You're not just part of the kingdom. You're in the noble family. You're in the royal family. You're a joint heir with Jesus Christ. So he says, my son, he's talking to all of you who are here by faith. John 1, 12 through 13, you can probably quote this on your own. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. This is not fatalism. This is not random things that happen to us. Everything by design. It's the providential hand of God who works for us from his loving care. You are his child. That alone should give you encouragement. See, he's reminding them that their very difficult persecution they were going through. Now, they hadn't been shedding their blood yet, so they hadn't been dying. There weren't martyrs yet. He's reminding, though, that it was difficult. But what they were going through, and this is the key, was nothing more than the discipline of God. Think about that. Man, I don't know. People are confiscating my property like we read in chapter 10. Doesn't seem like a really great thing, does it? And maybe they were losing heart because that's what their focus was on and they couldn't see what God was doing through it. But here the writer of Hebrews is starting to unpack for them that what they were going through, though difficult, though painful at times, was tailor-made by the hand of God for them. See that word Discipline uh, in the Greek is paideia. It means instruction to a child. It's a very unique word that he's using here. Instruction to a child or instructive correction, as it were. See, God uses circumstances to discipline us. And since he's sovereign, and we believe that, right? He's sovereign. He's provident all over. What's the difference between sovereignty and providence? Sovereignty. He decrees everything that should happen. He's, he's the ruler of all things, all power, all authority. Nothing happens without his say-so. Providence is how he works out his plan in the hearts of believers. 
He's sovereign. We believe that. He's provident. Then our circumstances, though difficult, though painful, are used by God to discipline us. How else would God do it? I mean, God just doesn't poof, change us. Poof, you're done. You're fixed. So many of us want to sit down and wait for God to make the changes on some kind of a mystical internal level. God is God of everything. He's not just spiritual. He's not the, the God over the spiritual things. He's God over the physical things too. Gnosticism denies the physical. and We're only just spiritual stuff. That's not who God is. And so God moves this way in our lives. He brings discipline through our circumstances. And I know when he's preaching this, I could see the collective cock of their heads. Wait, what? Getting banished from my house because I made a commitment to you, God, is a good thing for me? And the only thing the preacher could say is, yes, don't get mad yet. He's going to keep going. See, he says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't regard or despise. That's in parallel. So he says, don't despise or don't regard lightly with nor faint. Don't regard it lightly and don't faint because of it. They're in parallel to each other. He's telling them, before you start reacting to the circumstances of our life, though difficult, before you start thinking bad thoughts about God, I want you to consider, think it through, meditate what God may be doing in your life. He's trying to get this church here to reorient their way of thinking because the reason why they were losing heart, the reason why they were growing weary is they had a very uh, truncated view of the providence of God in their lives. And yes, discipline does hurt, doesn't it? But yet that's the tool that God uses to train us. And he does it because he loves us. That's what he says here um, in verse 6. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. That's the suffering that God brings to our life is motivated by this truth. It's an intervention of love into your life. We're just clicking along in our life thinking we're doing great. And God brings some discipline. That's an intervention. It's an intervention of love. I mean, he says scourging, too. He scourges every son he receives. Scourging, you know what that means? That's physical discipline. The spanking of a child, whipping. Those are the words that's used for this scourging. I'm reminded, when I was in sixth grade, I started attending Faith Baptist uh, Christian School down south and never been in a fundamentalist Baptist school before. Came out of public schools, basically, and... And you wouldn't believe it now, but, you know, back in those days, I was kind of a disruptive student in class. You would never believe that. In fact, I used to be such a problem student in class. It's a wonder I got through. But it was because of discipline. Oftentimes, Mrs. Denman, who sometimes I would misspell right Mrs. Demon, but Mrs. Denman would send out demerits. And one time, she was writing on the demerit what it was for. Brian is more interested in making the class laugh than paying attention. Oh, that was embarrassing but it wasn't enough because I didn't stop. But these were the days when in, in private schools, especially, they could still paddle you if they got permission from your parents. And I didn't know that. So one day, Mrs. Demon said, all right, let's stop the class. She went to the office. 
She called my mother to get permission. Who, I'm still upset that she said yes to all of this. <laughs> she took me out into the hallway where everyone can hear. I mean, line up like I'm being frisked by a cop. And took this paddle out. And she would whack me like Babe Ruth was swinging a baseball bat. And I think she liked it. I really do. But let me tell you something. As much as I resented that, as embarrassing as that was, and as painful as it could be at times, man, I saw the fruit of it later. I stopped being disruptive. I started learning. I started growing. And I had a lot to go, believe me. But the point was made that it took discipline and sometimes harsh, what I would seem harsh, discipline to make the necessary changes in my life. God does exactly the same thing with us. So when God's discipline through trials and difficulties comes your way, be encouraged. He loves you. It means that you're a son of God. It means that God's heavily invested in your life. You know, it's so interesting how we want God to be a father. We want God to be our father. But we don't want God to act like a father. We want all the benefits of God being our father, but none of the responsibilities and the discipline. That's not the way it works. He loves us. We're his children, so he disciplines us. So be encouraged with it when that happens. And I know that's hard. It's a mindset change. We have to reorient the way we're thinking, just like the church had to do. They had to reorient their thinking as well. That when it comes, instead of just shaking our fist up at the sky like is our tendency in our flesh to do so, stop for a moment, read Hebrews 12, and say, God, you must really love me. And there are times I've said that. God, you must really, really love me. And he does. Be encouraged by that. And he doesn't discipline you because he hates you. He doesn't discipline because he's angry with you. He's disciplining you because he loves you. Which... Begin, takes us to the next attitude about discipline. Be energized by it. So we're first be encouraged by it. Now be energized by discipline for God is training you. Let's look at verses 7 through 9. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline of which all have become partakers then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? I love that. Go back to verse 7. It is for discipline that you endure, for discipline. Or maybe you could change it to because of discipline. I mean, another way of saying this is like endure your trials as an expression of the discipline that God has brought to your life. It trains us to endure. So that's what we saw in the two Sundays ago in um, uh, verse 1. He said, run with endurance. And he didn't get quite to that part yet on how to achieve the endurance. You achieve the endurance by discipline. Runners, how do they 
get the endurance that they need for a long distance run. They do a series of sprint, jog, sprint, jog, sprint, jog, sprint, jog. And that sprinting and then jogging and sprinting again builds up their breath control, builds up their cardio, builds up their endurance so that when our long race goes, they can keep going. Boxers, what do they do? They constantly beat the heavy bag or they're going on the speed bag, going really fast to build up endurance to keep themselves going. They're constantly dancing around to give them the endurance because the fight may go 12 rounds and they have to stay on their feet. It is because of discipline that we endure and we're commanded to endure. Another, adverse circumstances have been assigned by God to those who are his children. Like I said, we want all the benefits of God being our father and none of the corrective instruction that a loving father would want to give. A father who cares is a father who wants his child to grow up. Parents, have you ever said that to your children? Grow up. You just grow up. Well, it's on us to help them grow up. We want them to become something better, something greater. An absence of discipline is nothing more than rejection by a father. It means he doesn't care. Have you ever seen children that have never received any kind of discipline in the home? Man, they're engaged in all kinds of dangerous activities and disrespectful and they're running amok. And you think, what's their life going to be like? It just shows that the parents simply do not care. Parents train their children because they don't know ultimately what's good for them. They're liable to engage in things that are dangerous or harmful. They might have things in them like laziness. Things that would hinder them in life or prevent them from being everything that they could possibly be. Discipline protects them, encourages them, develops them. This is what our Heavenly Father does for you. He is training you through these difficult circumstances so that you can endure. And just like an earthly father... That discipline's inconvenient. may hurt. might make us frustrated. It serves the purpose of training. The same goes with God. Let that energize you. So when God brings these difficult circumstances to your life, don't throw in the towel. Don't say, oh, that's it. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. Realize what it's doing in your life. What the Father is trying to accomplish. So when you get the right mindset, remember, our minds have to be transformed by the Word of God. And so when the Word of God transforms us and gets us to think what discipline, difficult circumstances, and trials is doing in our life, we can be energized by it. Okay, God is up to something here. I don't know what it is in the moment because he hadn't cleared it with me first. But I'm going to go with it. I'm going to be energized. Yes, it's inconvenient. Yes, it's painful. But we can have the strength to move forward with this, knowing what he's trying to do. He wants to train you. He says here, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. Now, the writer here doesn't want the church to lose this point. And he uses this particular Greek construction of the word sons. There's no, there's no article here, so I'm not going to bore you with those details. But the way it's constructed, it focuses on the quality of the son rather than the quantity of sons. I know that when we see a plural word here, in English especially, we think of quantity. But here, the word is meant to highlight the quality. So what does that mean? You're real sons. 
And he contrasts that with the very next verse in verse 8 where he says, real sons versus illegitimate sons. You're not an illegitimate child. You're the real deal. You're really in his family. And that word illegitimate in Greek culture was used as son of a slave or son of a concubine. If you really want to break it down, you could break it down like this. I don't know who my father is. You are considered an illegitimate child. A child without a father in Greek culture do not enjoy privileges of a family. They don't have, obviously, the protection of a father. They don't have any legal claim to inheritance whatsoever. But not you. You who are here by the faith in Jesus Christ, the gospel, what he has done for us, you're real children. You're not illegitimate children at all. You know who your father is. He loves you. He's training you. In fact, he says in verse 8, but if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, he's reminding you, you're not without discipline. But let's use the hypothetical. If you are without discipline, and I want to remind you, you all are partakers of discipline, and the church is like, yeah, amen, I see that. You're all partakers. You're not just going to sail through life. Going through difficulties, going through trials, it's brought about by the sovereign plan of God. But it's a demonstration that you are real sons and daughters. And its purpose is to train you. Man, can you think about that? How do I know that I'm a real child of God? Is God bringing difficulties in your life? There's a good sign right there that you are a real child child of God. Because if you were not a child of God, he would not bring upon difficulties and circumstances. God deals with the lost in a very different way than he deals with believers. But if you sail through life without difficulties or trials, if God never disciplines you in this life, you are not his child. That's why he says in Colossians 3, if you have been buried with Christ, or since you have been buried with Christ. Now we can focus on what's eternal. That's why our hearts have to be focused on the eternal. We are real children. We're not playing games in this life. Ultimately, this discipline is training you. He's training you to run the race. He's training you to fight the good fight. And when you think it through like this, let it energize you to know that one, you're a child of God, but then let it give your soul energy that when it happens, because he's now training you. He wants you to endure. He wants you to become like his son. He doesn't want you to stay where you are. He wants you to grow up into the best human being that you can be. And the best human being you can be is Jesus Christ. Now, that won't be completed until either Christ comes home or he takes us away, whichever comes first. But we're on that road and God does it through discipline. He wants you to be everything that you can be. Look at verse 9. There's some more contrasting going on here in this verse. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? Earthly fathers. He says, from them we learned respect. At least we should. That was the lesson, right? We learned respect from these earthly fathers. This is the right response to correction from a human father. So he contrasts that. If we respect our fathers, 
or our parents who have disciplined us. We learn respect. And isn't it true, those who have children that have moved on, they come back later on, like maybe in their 20s and 30s, and say, man, you were right all along. You know, you didn't get that while they were, you were disciplining them, but you're getting it now. You were right. They show respect. That's what they learn. So much then, why would we not respect our Heavenly Father who brings discipline to our life? In fact, he calls him the Father of Spirits. Again, this is that comparison that he's making. Earthly fathers have control of our earthly bodies here on this earth. Father is transcendent. The Father of Spirits is transcendent over all of it. But he's a father of our soul, our spirit, who we really are inside. Submission, therefore, is essential. He says there... How much more rather be subject to him? If we're willing to respect our parents, why are we not willing to submit to what God is doing in our life? But man, when discipline and difficulties and trials, sometimes submitting to that is the last thing we do. We fight, shake our fist. When God tries to remove things, we do everything we can to desperately bring it back. Then we get angry. And we mope and be depressed. Instead, we're to be energized because God is in this process of training us. He says, be subject to the Father of Spirits and live. Now, he's not talking about salvation here because that doesn't come from submission in, in that way and as far as trials and difficulties go. He's talking about live, to enjoy life properly, a life that has been approved by God. Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. We may not know what the proper life is for us, that's why we need God's instruction. We get God's instruction here. But perhaps we know the proper way to live, but in rebellion, we fight against that. I know God wants me to do X, but I want to do Y. And you hear the tugging of the Holy Spirit in your life. You feel the conviction as you do Y. You hear the people in your church community calling you back to X, Stop doing why, whatever that is. Father steps in. Son, I'm going to teach you something. I'm going to show you why Y is worthless and why X is the way to go. And he begins that process using your circumstances to discipline you and to train you. If we live life focused on the things of the thief, we'll be robbed of blessing and joy. And it will ultimately lead to death every single time. You know why? Jesus said it. That's why. The thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Don't follow the ways of the thief. Jesus came so that you would have life and have it abundantly. And so discipline comes to show you how to live in the full meaning of what abundant life is like. How to live in a way that pleases him. So when trials and difficulties come your way, don't shrink back. You can do this. Dig in. Let the truth of this verse, these verses, energize you. God is treating you like a real child. He's training you to have an abundant life. He's approved for you. He doesn't want you to live in sin or live in a way that's not conducive with his will. Don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. Know what it's all about. 
we have our third final attitude toward discipline, and that's be eager for discipline. Does anyone eager for discipline? Be eager. This is, we have to be. Be eager for discipline, for God desires to reward you. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. For they, meaning the earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, meaning God, disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. we got more contrasts here. For they, earthly fathers, but he, the heavenly father. So let's look at these earthly fathers. He said, for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. It's an interesting qualifier. As seemed best for them. We're not perfect as parents, are we? Children definitely do not come with an owner's manual, though we would love that at times. We do have scripture, and it guides our principles and decision-making, but oftentimes we apply it imperfectly or inconsistently even. We may have been disciplined sinfully. Has anyone ever disciplined their child in the middle of a grocery store because they're pitching a tantrum, and you were just embarrassed by that? It's okay to say that. Sometimes we... We, we know what's good for them. We've read the scripture, especially Christian parents. We know what's good for our children. We know to raise our children in the nurture and the admonition of, in, of the Lord. But sometimes because we're imperfect, we do it imperfectly. That's why he said, as seems best to them. Even us as parents may not fully know what's good for them in the moment. And so what does this do? Well, it can lead for children to respect us. We saw that in the prior verses. But it could lead to resentment. It could lead to bitterness. Even rebellion. This is why scripture commands fathers in Ephesians 6, 4, don't provoke your children to wrath because it's a tendency in us. So he's making this contrast. Then he switches over, but God, best words in scripture, but he, our heavenly father, he disciplines us for our good. He's concerned about our welfare and everything he does is to that end. It may not seem like it at the time, but it's motivated by the love of the Father. It's good even if it doesn't look like it's good. It's good even if it doesn't feel like it's good. We love those verses. God works all things together for our good to those who are called according to his purpose in Christ Jesus. We, we know scripture says this. But yet when difficulties come in our life, we fail to see that the pain we're experiencing, the loss we might be experiencing, the difficult circumstances is designed by God for our good. So how do you remember that in the moment? We need to go back to reminding ourselves who God is. That attribute, essential attribute of God is his goodness. God is good. He can't do anything else because it's who he is. Everything he says, everything he does is good. And so when God brings difficult circumstances to your life and trials and tribulations, it is good and comes from a good father. And there are times, man, your flesh is going to fight that truth. You just have to stand on that promise. It doesn't feel good, God. But I'm going to take it to the bank because scripture says that you are good. And I'm going to trust and I'm going to be patient. I'm going to let you do what you're doing in my life because you are 
good. And ultimately, our complaints are based on false premises anyway. It's usually based on our flesh. The very thing that God is trying to change in our life, out of that, our complaints will flow. We must accept discipline from the hand of God as something designed for our intrinsic good. We need to stop feeling resentment and even rebellion against God. We had resentment against our earthly fathers at times. Frustration, anger, perhaps bitterness. Don't turn that on God. Yes, our parents may not have disciplined us properly all the time. Yes, perhaps they didn't always know fully what was our good, or even if they did, they applied it improperly. Don't take the resentment that you felt against them and turn it on God. God is so much greater. And above all of that, he is good. But here's the point. He disciplines us our good so that, here's the purpose statement, so that we may share his holiness. That's another essential attribute of God, isn't it? His holiness. We may share. It's written in such a way that this isn't something that you earn. You don't earn holiness by doing really good. It's a free gift given by God. He is holy. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves holy. He is holy. It's a gift that's given when we've been trained through discipline. How many times you try to stop doing something you knew you shouldn't do, but the more you tried to stop, the more you ended up doing it. And then God brings discipline in our life. All of a sudden, it's gone. That's how it works. You don't wake up one day and say, I shall be holy today without having been trained as to what really needs to be made holy in your life in the first place. Discipline changes your life. It takes what's unholy, transforms it to holy. It takes what's sinful and turns it into what is righteous. It takes what is evil and turns it into good. And this way, we share the holiness of God. Not as a result of what we've done, but what God is doing in us. We should be eager for it when discipline comes. Because what that means is we get to share his holiness. God is rewarding us with holiness. But let's keep going. Verse 11. All discipline, all of it, every single bit of it, heavenly, earthly, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. All discipline, for the moment, seems not to be joyful. Has anyone experienced difficult circumstances that you just got a great amount of joy out of that? All of it does. Whether it's an earthly father's discipline or it's a heavenly father's discipline, it is not necessarily the greatest thing to experience in the moment. But that's why he says seems. For the moment, it seems. It's this initial impression that we get when difficulty comes to our lives. This initial impression is always superficial. Going back to the example of Mrs. Denman with the old paddle, the baseball bat out of the paddle. Yeah, didn't seem very joyful. And it was painful, but that was superficial. Pain passed, and I started changing. I started growing. I started acting like I should in a classroom. It yielded fruit. But in the moment, it seemed bad. 
the pain won't last. But those who have been trained by it, those who have submitted to it, because they know that this comes from a God who loves you, from a God who wants to train you, from a God who refers to himself as the God of the spirits. If you are trained by discipline, this is the key, submission. You won't fight it. You'll have joy. When you're trained by it, you'll receive the fruit of righteousness. The question is, will you be trained by it? Or will you fight it? Will you grow sorrowful to the point where you lose heart and grow weary? When God starts taking things away in your life, when God starts bringing very, very difficult circumstances, are you willing to be trained by that, to submit to it? If you do, discipline will bear fruit in your life, that's when you begin to see the value of discipline. That's why it seems not joyful and sorrowful. It's only a superficial impression. But then when discipline does its work because we've submitted to it, then we see the value of it, which is a fruit in our life. He said, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Man, peace. Peace in the midst of the storm. Peace in the midst of your trials and tribulations. Peace in the midst of persecution. This is yours if you're willing to be trained by discipline. And he's preaching to some people that are going through some very hard persecution. I think, I think most Christians, especially in the West, we kind of have a persecution complex. Someone looks at us funny because we claim the name of Christ. Oh, I'm being persecuted. These people lost their homes. These people were made, in chapter 10, they were made public spectacle in front of other people, mocked at, harassed, property confiscated. And yet in this, he said, be trained by it. Submit to it. Let it do its work inside of you. And if you do, if you do, you'll have peace in the middle of it. People take your home and you're at peace. Yeah, it's not something you want. But you have peace in your heart when you go through it. If you're going through something difficult, do you have peace in your life right now? Are you all stirred up inside? And you're brainstorming ways to get yourself out of this mess. Stop. Remember that this is from God. Remember it's for your good. This is a, a direct example of sonship in your life. He's training you and he wants to reward you. Have peace in it. Submit to him. Get peaceful fruit of righteousness. What is righteousness? Holy, moral, upright. Everything that is God is righteousness. The righteousness of God is the divine attribute that describes God as always acting in a way that's consistent with his character. So God is operating some harsh discipline in your life. It comes from the fact that he is good and he is righteous. And so if you submit to it, you allow him to train you through it. You not only share his holiness, but you get some righteousness on top of it. You grow in your faith. You're becoming more like Christ Jesus. When the church was persecuted the most in church history, it's when it grew the most. Because they walked around with the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I'm reminded of Ignatius early church father, knew the apostle John, who carried on the torch uh, after the apostles passed away. He was being arrested to go to Rome. We'd have to answer to the, in the Colosseum as to whether he would recant Christ. He wrote to all of the Christians and all the churches. He said, I can't wait. I can't wait. 
if the lions won't eat me, I'm just going to open up their head and put my head in it. <laughs> a little too much peace, but he is at peace because he knew ultimately this is not all that there is. There's more to this. And the sooner his body fails on this earth, he's standing in the presence of Almighty God with all the glory that entails and everything that he left behind on this earth pales. It's not even in the same ballpark. It's not even the same game. It pales in comparison to Christ Jesus and what he's going to do with you. This is what we read all throughout Revelation as well. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5 real quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse 17. Yeah, a few moments. 2 Corinthians 5, we're going to look at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a, what kind of a creature? New creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal for us, we beg you on behalf of Christ... Be reconciled to God. He made him, meaning Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus didn't just take some sin. He became sin. You think about the Lord of glory taking on flesh, going to a cross, enduring the hostility that we just talked about in the beginning part of this, of this section, enduring all that hostility from hands of sinners, going to a cross, the Lord of glory becoming sin for those who put their faith in him. And when you do, you become the righteousness of God. Man, that's powerful. God doesn't just want you to have a little bit of righteousness just to carry you through your day. Come to church, get your spiritual shot in the arm, as it were. He wants you to be his righteousness. Living, breathing examples of what it means to be an all-holy God. Not that we're God, but we demonstrate that to the world. We show the truth of the gospel. That you take this person and you, he transforms it and makes something amazing out of it. That's what he does. Charles Spurgeon once said... If you see afflictions come and then sit down impatiently and will not be exercised by your trials, then you do not get the peaceful fruit of righteousness. But if you should say, now is the time of my trial, I will play the man. I love that. I will play the man. I will wake up my faith to meet the foe, take hold of God, stand firm with firm foot and not slip. Let all my graces be stirred up for here is something to be exercised on. It is then that a man's bone and sinew and muscle all grow strong. None of these passages ever says that we get to share the holiness of God and we get the peaceful fruit and righteousness in the sweet by and by someday. I love this song, in the sweet by and by, but it doesn't say that. That if we are trained by it, we can have it now. And in a world that is desperately in need of some kind of peace and righteousness, this world that's turning itself upside down with madness, you walk around with peace. 
you walk around as the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's the hope that this world needs. See, God has a training program for you, and it's called discipline. It's a training regimen to help you win the, not win the race, but you've already won the race in Christ Jesus, but to finish the race, to go through all the rounds of the good fight of the faith. So be encouraged. God loves you. He doesn't hate you. He's not angry with you. He loves you. Be energized. He's training you. Don't shrink. Don't grow weary. Let it energize you to know what God is trying to accomplish in you. And be eager because God wants to reward you by sharing in his holiness and gaining the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Let's pray. Almighty God, so much more really could be said about all of these things, but it's amazing how you work in our lives. You know, Lord, we often wonder, is God at work in my life? Is God at work in my life? And we fail to see that the difficult circumstances is very much your work in our life. Help us not to lose heart. Help us not to grow weary. Help us to stand firm, like Charles Spurgeon said, to to take up like a man and hand this thing and do this well. We know all comes from you and you are good. In Jesus' name.